Welcome to the now playing Halloween retrospective series. Only trying to give America a good show. Hosted by Stuart. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up. Arnie. I prayed that he would burn in hell, but in my heart, I knew that hell would not have him. And Brock. One must remember not to be fooled by his calm, unassuming facade. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Due to the current release of Rob Zombie's new Halloween movie, H2, we will be watching and reviewing all of the films in the Halloween series. These eyes will deceive you. A warning, these conversations will be spoiler-filled, and as the movies are R-rated, there may be some objectionable language. Every other word you say is either hell or shit or damn. Trick or treat, motherfucker! Today we're discussing Halloween, John Carpenter's classic 1978 movie. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart from Haddonfield uh, by way of L.A. And this is Arnie. I guess I'm south of Haddonfield. I'm guessing Haddonfield's one of those well-off Chicago burbs. Uh, yeah. Where, where is uh, – being that we're both from Illinois originally, I'm in the place that actually where they filmed it. I can e- even take you – if you're ever in town, I can take you to the house. It's Pasadena and it's West L.A. is where you can find that neighborhood. But if it's set in Illinois, I'm thinking it's downstate. I'm thinking it's probably around Springfield, Arnie. I think it's by you. Watch out. You may be right. It may be actually further south now that you think about it because Mm -hmm. the whole town surrounds one general store where you can buy saws and Halloween masks. (laughs) So perhaps we're really downstate, like where they filmed the sequel to The Fugitive. Yeah. No, there's not a Walmart in sight. So I'm thinking it's some mythical Illinois area. It's actually a fictional town. Yeah. Well, of course. Go ahead and spoil the fun, Brock. I wanted to go when I was a kid, and don't think that it didn't affect my judgment as a child watching this movie to know that the killer was somewhere in the neighborhood. I, I had to admit I had to look it up to know it's fictional, but yes. <laughs> Strangely enough, though, we do have a Crystal Lake, Illinois. Yeah, oh. I was disappointed in that one. Not any campgrounds to be seen. Okay, well, we're here to discuss the original 1978 John Carpenter Halloween, and we are coming at this from three different perspectives. As always, if you have heard our previous retrospective series for Friday the 13th, The Terminator, and Star Trek, each of us come to these movies with our own unique perspective. And I'll start off, I am completely noob to this series. I have never seen one Halloween movie until we started watching it for these things, unlike the last two or three where I've seen maybe one or two of them. So this is really fun for me to actually experience something for the first time, and I'm just looking forward to the entire entire franchise. And with me, I guess this time I get to play the fanboy because Halloween is just one of those seminal movies for me. I know it like I know anything I've ever seen. It's one of the first movies I ever saw that was R-rated. Very big deal. Um, I have even a funny little story. My mom saw it before she allowed any of us to see it. It was my brother and I and, and her. My dad was away on business, and she watched it at 3 in the morning. 
And after it concluded, she accidentally uh, unplugged her lamp and immediately was so scared that she believed that Michael Myers or somebody was outside and had cut the power. And I was woken up in the middle of the night with her telling me that there was a killer in the house and that we were going to have to run to the car before he killed us. At least you didn't run upstairs. (laughs) (laughs) We were upstairs. We were upstairs. But the funny thing was, you know, my mom did the whole, we crouched, run to the garage or whatever, and then she saw the garage light on and knew that she had just been freaked out by a movie. But I had already turned around and gone back to bed because I would have rather gotten my rest than uh, lived. (laughs) (laughs) That's taking your sleep seriously. I was hard to wake up. But it's, it's seriously, it's it's always been a movie that's been in our family. I've seen many times. Uh, certainly, out of all of the the ones to follow, Friday the Thirteenth, Child's Play, Nightmare on Elm Street, all of that, this would be my favorite slasher series. Well, you just elevated Chucky to a level that has never been before, putting him in the <laughs> pantheon of villains. Well, you know, he's no Leprechaun, but he's in there somewhere. <laughs> For me, I am kind of the skeptic on this one, despite the fact that I grew up loving horror. Just, you know, anything that had vampires, zombies, or slashers, I was watching it from April Fool's Day to I Spit on Your Grave. But for some reason, the Halloween series was one that I never got much into. And eventually, in the 90s, I watched them, and I was always aware of them. When they did the return of Michael Myers, I can still remember the commercials on television for it. And I'm like, well, glad they brought him back finally, because I remember talking about part three with Stuart back then, still having never seen it. But then when they really started trying to resurrect the series, bringing back Jamie Lee Curtis in the 90s and so on, I, I saw all the others and I don't remember them very well. It's been 10 years, but still, this isn't one that I have held up there that high, which is odd because my wife, It's her favorite movie series. So I've become more exposed, especially to the original one and to the Rob Zombie remake through my wife's wanting to see them. But more than anything, for all the horror I've seen, this one is one I'm very unfamiliar with. Well, it's going to make for some interesting conversation then, because you have uh, are able to maybe remember things as you go, whereas I have no idea what's going to happen. And just to start off with this conversation, so we watched, I pop the movie in and I start watching it, and the music starts right away. And here's this, and this is going to sound bizarre to probably the both of you, I didn't realize that music was from Halloween. What? <laughs> I know, I know. Oh my God. I know, I know. It's like farting in church. You just really embarrassed yourself, Brock. I I totally did. I heard it it every year. Hey, and Brock, that nana, nana is Jaws. (laughs) Oh, thanks. I... Um, for years, I knew it was like – I always get it confused, and this is going to kill you both, with the, the bells from The Exorcist. Tubular bells. Yeah. Okay. So. Well, that's at least you're in the right genre. I can right. understand So, Having um, never seen – if you hadn't seen those, yeah, I guess that's – I mean, sure. Yeah, I've seen The Exorcist, but I, I hadn't seen these. So when it came on, it just set the perfect tone, and then all of a sudden, two other things blew my mind. It was Donald Pleasance and then introducing Jamie Lee Curtis. Now, I know this was her big thing, but Donald Pleasance, I was completely – like holy cow cool because you I didn't know, know he was in it not really? a clue yeah oh. I, didn't, I didn't even read the back of the box my wife picked it up from the video store so i had no idea who was in this I, we just popped it in completely blind okay who the hell is donald pleasance because i only know him from halloween He's <laughs> i was just about to say yeah other than james bond and halloween it would be difficult to name things he's in i could name a couple but 
Exactly. The, the, his one-two punch in pop culture is uh, Blofeld and Bond, and uh, I think he did a couple of those, didn't he? No, he and, didn't. Strangely, he only did the one, and he's the one, if you think of Dr. Evil, he's the mm-hmm. guy. No, yeah, he's, he is the archetype model. Bond villain, yeah, in a wheelchair, stroking a cat, yeah, doing evil things with a flip of a switch. Yeah, he's good at that, and he's churned out a lot of, more than Jamie Lee Curtis, I think he did more Halloween movies. I think he's in most of them until he died. Really? Is that true? I think so. Yeah. I mean, he's in a total of five, and Jamie Lee Curtis is in four, so he beats her by one. Right. I was not aware of that. Actually, it's probably a tie, because Jamie Lee Curtis is an uncredited cameo in part three, so it may be five and five. True. We'll have to talk about that. I I didn't realize that. But anyway, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Donald Pleasance and Jamie Lee Curtis definitely are the backbone of this installment, for sure, and much of the series. But before we jump ahead too far, I want to talk about that music, because I think more than anything that has kept the Halloween franchise alive, it's that music. Because while Halloween is perhaps the first modern day slasher film going back to Psycho for its roots, but then inspiring Friday the 13th and the slew of others. But while it's often imitated, I think that what brings Halloween back most, what people most think of, they don't think of Michael Myers or the William Shatner mask. They think of that music. And I think that music more than anything gets people excited to see it again. The music's spookier than most of what I remember of the sequels. I wouldn't necessarily deny that it is an essential part of the movie and really the best carpenter movies are paired with usually his best scores that he usually composes them he just knows how to work on a minimalist level and i would argue all of halloween works on a very minimalist level there's not a lot of depth to it it's very cut and dry it's very simple but effective in that way. I mean, there's only a couple notes in the theme, you know? I mean, it's just a couple notes, but it gets in your head and it instantly puts you in the mood. Yeah, it's just because of the key it's in and the tempo, it is sounds that put you on edge just right there. It was something very primal that he tapped into with the score. I think it's extremely effective. One other thing is the title, Halloween. You know, this movie was originally to be called The Babysitter Murders. And what a great title to stumble upon, even if it did eventually cause such things as April Fool's Day and... Silent Night, Deadly Night. Exactly. And Friday the 13th. New Year's Evil. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those ideas that you can't believe it took so long to come up with. Like, why didn't someone think that naming Halloween, uh, the name, making that the name of their horror movie, would be an effective way to market it? It's, uh, why did that take so long? Exactly. I don't know, but it's so simple and so minimalist, and yet it's once you come up with the idea, it's like, well, of course, that's that's perfect. So right off the bat with the music, they have this fantastic opening scene with the opening murder that is almost all, if not completely all, point of view of this kid well we find out it's a kid oh yeah that's that's the brilliance of the of it that's the last beat of a very effective two shots it should be said it's two shots for that opening scene and that's what makes it so impressive not only that they give you a hint they show the kid getting the knife out of the drawer so you have a hunch that it's a kid because they have the clown arm the suit and that little hand so you're like what the hell is that clown and then you see it through the mask what his point of view is when he puts the mask on before he attacks the girl. 
unbelievably effective. The whole scene was just, man, did that get you into what the heck is going on there. Brilliance. It was just yeah, amazing. It, there's a lot of components to it. I mean, it starts out with a, just an opening shot of the house and you hear kids chanting and you're like, you're not sure what you're going to see. And it moves forward and you look through the window and you see the teenagers necking or whatever and playing with a clown mask. You're like, okay, I know what this movie is. They're about to die. And we realize we're, we're watching it from the point of view of a killer, which at that time was still a novel perspective. I think really only Jaws had popularized that before. It was not the cliche that it had become. So yeah, you follow this POV as it goes to the house and they pull out the knife and he puts on the mask. It's interesting though. The uh, boyfriend comes down the stairs and leaves. Now he had the opportunity right there if he were just a, a savage killer to go after him right there. There was never going to be a better shot to kill someone than right there. He doesn't. He goes upstairs and and as and and we're hearing him breathe through the mask and mm-hmm. he's approaching this this girl who's seems unaware she's at a vanity uh combing her hair and then she sees him and says Michael so we know that there is an awareness between these two characters she's not necessarily horrified that someone with a knife wearing a clown mask is in her room <laughs> as most of us would be and then the interesting thing is he looks up and maybe some of this was just to let the audience know that a knife was being used but it's almost like the character didn't want to see the act of violence that he was about to do he he stares up at his knife going up and down and then is heading downstairs and the last part of that where we cut we finally cut the parents are coming out now and and they pull off the mask and it is the six-year-old boy very fresh-faced wholesome looking kid who is not violent at that point i mean it's he's not a homicidal maniac he's not trying to kill the parents he's not trying to go on a bloodthirsty rampage it seems to have been motivated by the single purpose of killing this sister for the act of being sexually seductive it brings in a whole lot of questions as to what we've just seen even though it's totally self-contained in two shots yeah, and what I like about this is I don't know how much they really researched serial killers and psychological disorders, but the fact that in this movie, just in the beginning scene, it sets it up and it carries later that this boy has some disorder where he prefers to be hidden behind a mask and that they did it in the early thing and then later when he escapes as an adult, one of the first things he does is runs for a mask. That really resonates with me as creepy because that's that's realistic mm-hmm. well, i don't know if it's realistic i don't i don't know that many serial killers <laughs> didn't you used to wear a mask arnie only to see nightmare on elm street movies <laughs> yeah that's that's what i was thinking of but anyway we can talk about that one in another podcast but i am always intrigued by openings that both do something self-contained and ask a lot of questions i think maybe what's more frustrating about halloween as it goes along at least in this installment is we don't get a whole lot of answers as to why michael did what he did we we only get inferences and the story perspective changes when we jump 15 years into the future one thing that is kind of damning for me in this movie is that i know so much from just being in the history there's something that i I, i'll say it right now in later movies and i think in the pantheon of halloween it is said that laurie strode is michael's sister that's not in this movie Mm -mm. no and also in all the movies i've always 
always taken it to be that Michael killed his sister because his sister had very brief sex. And not that it was the brief part, but I was just laughing because it was like, that guy had to be a three hump chump. I mean, seriously, they went upstairs, <laughs> Michael gets a knife and the guy's out the door. It's like, wow. Mm -hmm. I remember mm -hmm. being a teenager too. So... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I can only think that uh, he was going to go get something to prepare because they hadn't done the deed yet. Uh, because, yeah, I mean. Oh, I thought they were done. He was saying goodbye. Uh, you're right. And she I, was nude. I mean, they were done. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah, quick. That is, that, yeah, you're right. That is, that's very quick. But I always took it as, again, going into these psychological disorders. Michael watched his sister having sex and then killed her. And that's, that's, I mean, not to take this where it shouldn't go not to be like oh that's deep man and pass me a joint but seriously there's something fucked up about it no i will make the argument here that when this perspective shifts to jamie lee curtis this is really the story about a loss of virginity and the fear of a woman to have sex with a man because he becomes this sort of minimalist character he just has this mask he's featureless and he's he's operates only by a knife it's all about impaling there's no really other method of killing. It's all about sticking her. And she's got to protect her kids, you know, from this. this and it's all paired with, uh, well, we can talk about this in a minute. But it seems that it's always being paired with the idea that she's a loner and not dating boys. And that there are boys that she's interested in, but she's fearful to go out on a date with or to talk to. And that it really becomes... They both got some sexual hangups, is what I'm saying. Michael's got his issues with sex from a very pre-sexual age, and Jamie Lee Curtis character does as well. Lori, Lori definitely has her own issues, and it's funny how they, without ever having to bring up the whole family connection thing in this one, how they mirror each other. Mm -hmm. you, you brought up the fact that the first opening scene is so effective with its only two shots. The entire movie has a lot of long shots. And what mm -hmm. I love about this movie, and I talked a little bit about this in Friday the 13th when they were setting up certain scenes, especially the beginning of Friday the 13th Part 2 was one long take. Here they did a lot of that. And what they did with that was great because it really added a sense of, for lack of a better word, creepiness. For example, you see this Michael's shoulder and you see Jamie Lee walking away. Or even when you have a lingering shot with, of, of Dr. Loomis outside the hardware store and you see you know, Michael driving behind him. Or you see the shots linger so much that you're waiting for Michael to pop out and then he doesn't. And he doesn't. And he doesn't. And finally he does. Like They play with you so much because they have such long takes to do it with. It really sets up a sense of, I don't know when he's going to come. And you really feel like the unknown is so strong in this movie. It makes it so effective. And that's why he is such a creepy and, and, and uh, memorable character. I agree with you. I feel the real star here uh, is Carpenter and his, and his uh, director of photography, Dean Cundy. They've obviously been students of Hitchcock. A lot of these setups feel like Hitchcock shots, the way that he would set up a long take and to use suspense to build uh, with the framing of things, so the things happening in the foreground, things happening in the background, characters, Michael coming, you know, sitting up and coming towards someone and the other person not knowing because he's out of the depth of field it's all very classically made cinematography very well done it's using a weakness and making it a strength 
they didn't have a lot of money for this movie. It's evident. There's a lot of low lighting situations, and there's some of it is just flat out underexposed. But because they created this world where it is so dark, they really have a lot of fun with characters. Michael, particularly stepping out of shadows at inopportune times, you really get the sense that the darkness is really doing much to create the suspense. There's that wonderful shot right at the end when it's almost like the light comes up on him with a, like a greenish kind of tint to it on his mask when she's mm-hmm. standing against the wall and he's like maybe in the closet or something and it slowly comes up. Brilliant uh, shot with and the lighting. And, and, you know, they always talk about this um, when the original movies are low budget and they do so well. And when you give them more money for the sequel, something's always missing. It's because these artists need to use what they have. The classic example, of course, is Jaws. And even Raiders of the Lost Ark. They, sure. they didn't have all the money, so they had to do what they could at the time. And out of it was born just genius moves. And this movie is chock full of those. And it's just it was just wonderful to see something as simple as as what I call simple as a slasher movie really take it to a different level. Because we've seen so many movies now about uh, murderers. This one just seems like a whole different class. Well, I don't know if this is what you're speaking to, but I can say one thing that seems very distinctive when comparing this, having seen all the Friday the 13th very recently, is that this feels less like an exploitation flick. With Friday mm. the 13th, I definitely get the sense that a lot of the joy comes from watching the visual effects of of the deaths. Like, how do we cut a throat? How do we How do we do all these effects to show you gore? That's not the emphasis in Halloween. It's really about setting up suspense. The the killings themselves are are relatively little blood. The TNA factor is relatively small. Carpenter is really not trying to sell you an exploitation film. He is trying to make a suspense film like Hitchcock would. If Hitchcock uh, were a independent filmmaker in Southern California, uh, he probably would make a, a, a horror movie much like this. I noticed when I was watching, people get stamped, but there's not a lot of blood splurts or blood at all. Maybe a small little bit here and there, not a lot of blood. And when I'm watching this thinking when, when he, the kid is up on the, the wall and he stays there, how there's no blood dripping down because they didn't have the money for the blood. Who cares? You don't need the blood. It's not what it's about. Mm-hmm. He chokes people because there's no blood when he choke people. So it's really convenient, but you still don't care. And it, it's, it's just amazing. I don't think it's all about the money. You could have gotten some K-Row syrup and some food coloring, which is what a lot of these places use. I think it was a stylistic choice on Carpenter to keep the blood down, and it may be something as in they don't want the X rating that they're afraid they're going to get, and they can't afford the reshoots. Hmm. As for the TNA factor, I'd say it's as prevalent in this first one as in any of the Friday the 13ths we've seen. If he didn't want to make any exploitation flick, he could have kept the women clothed. There's, out of the four main women in the movie, we get to see three of them topless, so. No, who's the third? I'm counting Michael's sister at the beginning. Michael's sister, the blonde in the bed who gets killed with a phone cord. Well, that one, yes. But the other one, the, the other one, we do not see breasts. No, she, she just wears there, her shirt. There, there's a very awkward scene in which she's uh, melting butter on the kitchen <laughs> stove, which is, I, I got to tell you, I had so many flashbacks about a world of older technology from my youth watching this movie. People talking on corded phones, people just calling each other that live across the street from one another. All of that was just, it was taking me back to, uh, to a place that doesn't exist anymore. But uh, yeah, she's melting. <laughs> butter and then for some reason spills so much of it that she has to take off every article of clothing on her body 
right there in the kitchen. It, yeah, right there in the kitchen, and then walk it outside the house to the back house to the shed where the the laundry machine is. Uh, but if that's just a backside shot. I don't think we ever see. That's right. Okay, you don't see nipple. You get to see side boob, but no nipple. It's very uh, brief. I feel like someone that was more concerned with, with making their money at a drive-in or, or a B picture would be much more focused on how do we give the kids what they want, the blood and the TNA. Carpenter approaches this much more class. It's a much more classy film. Mm-hmm. I just wonder how much the X rating and the MPAA might have had to do with what they did. All I can keep coming back to whenever I see naked women in a horror movie is the fact that the reason in A Nightmare on Elm Street that Wes Craven didn't put nudity is he felt nipples plus blood would guarantee him an X rating. And indeed, they're independent filmmakers. They don't have Hollywood backing. They need this to be able to be distributed. I think you could make the case, though, that you're just as much likely to get distribution if you go for the X. And, and and make it this forbidden thing as you are to make a tame version. Case in point, though, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was made a few years prior to this, also relatively bloodless and received a PG rating from the MPAA. They went back to it and argued that it should get an R because how do you release a movie called Texas Chainsaw Massacre and have it only be PG? Mm. Um, I think there might have been a willingness to keep it tame and then as the success of the formula became more obvious, as Texas Chainsaw Massacre, as Halloween became successful, the need to push the envelope for more gore, for more blood. I think we're going to see that in these Halloween sequels, that they eventually do sort of succumb to the temptation of making it about the death. But for this film, it really doesn't feel like it's just about slaughter, that we're really watching a, a classic Hitchcockian story about a woman in peril with the subtext of, of it being about her fear of of men, pred the predatory nature of men and what they want from her. What's weird is this movie's directed and written by John Carpenter and his then-girlfriend Deborah Hill. And Carpenter is somebody who I, I like. I like his early stuff, all the way up to, I think, Memoirs of an Invisible Man is where I jumped off his train. Mm, but good. I have to say, I've never really thought of him as an artist. I see him more as a schlock director who has backed into a couple of moments of genius. The first one being Halloween and perhaps the only other one that I consider genius being The Thing. I, I'm with you on The Thing. I think that's his greatest film. And uh, you can even see there's a reference to it in here when she, yep. when uh, Lori's babysitting the kids. It's one of the horror movies that they're watching is the original thing. It's called The Thing from Another World, the 1950s movie. And this was four years before his thing would come out. Exactly. So you knew it was on his mind even then. He wanted to make it. It's the best film. I'd also argue, if I may, since we're talking about Carpenter, about They Live. I would throw They Live in those three. We can we can we can do a Carpenter retrospective at some time, but I would argue he had three good films. All right. Yeah. He had three good ones. The reason I'm bringing this up is I don't think of him as an artist. I think of him as a schlock filmmaker. And I mean, I think that this is proven by his scores, you know? I mean, you look at some of his other movies, Chris Dean and things, these scores are so minimal. Minimalist. I see him as a minimalist, get the job done director. And so, you know, we there is so much here that we're attributing, but I got to wonder how much of it is intentional and how much of it is just Carpenter doing what he felt he had to do to get the job done for $300,000. 
Right. That is a very debatable perspective. I agree with you that indeed what we are, we are attributing as artistic choices uh, may in fact have been choices of necessity or exactly. accident. But that's true of anything. I mean, when you get into the realm of criticism, uh, you know, critics are always accused of seeing things that aren't there or reading into things that aren't true. I think that's legitimate. I think once the work is done and edited and up there, it's for people to decide what they want to see into it. And I think think that that's okay. I think, if anything, we can probably look at the full body of John Carpenter's work now that he's been working for, what, 30 years and say, well, probably not a genius. <laughs> Some of those later films, not genius, not a lot there. He certainly seemed to do his best stuff when he was limited by his budgets. That when he was working independently in those early years, there's a quality to them that uh, the later films do not have. Once he started working with Hollywood stars and having more money and had become known as a horror movie director, it was kind of over. That said, I do think that maybe by instinct, if not by study and design, he really did tap into a lot here with his cinematography style, with his with what he wrote. There's so much here that just works on a primal level from the score to the shots that this movie very much works and watching it, it really holds up quite a bit. And it's a, such a simple premise. Three random teenage girls who are friends and a guy breaks out of an insane asylum and starts to kill them. And that's something else. I mean, you don't see that too much now, but breaking out of an insane asylum back in the 80s, that was like a huge fear too, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Yes. There, there was actually a scare in our neighborhood. And, you know, I guess I was prone to panic, but. And your mother, obviously. And my mother, you know, I, I get this from her. But there was there was actually a quote-unquote serial killer on the loose. I don't know if you remember this, Arnie. In Springfield, there had been someone that had murdered a couple of people and was on the lam. And I just remember feeling that in the air, that knowing that Haddonfield was somewhere in Illinois and it could be close to Springfield, knowing that there were killers out in the world and, and, and loose – uh, you know, we were we were catching the 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 crest of the wave uh, of what would become a big staple of the '80s, which is this slasher movie cliche about this killer. But yes, it, it at this point it still had a reality to it. It still felt like a place where you know and you grew up and you lived. Uh, some of these other series uh, less so, but this one had a reality to it that many of the copycats do not. And this was back at a time where you could make a psychiatrist a hero, where as in the 80s, psychiatrists were almost unanimously villainous. Well, you know what? It's Donald Pleasant's a hero. <laughs> He's a weird character here. I've got to say, particularly in this movie, I'm not really sure what he's about. We're introduced to, to him in the second scene in the movie, right after the opening that we've talked about. He is riding in a car up uh, up a dark road, uh, thunderstorm, uh, rain, with a nurse, um, heading to a, a, a mental ward. And uh, it's a good little scene. It sets it up. And he's tricked to get out of the car. And Michael breaks the glass of the car, scares the nurse. She barely gets away before he chokes her. And then he drives away, bringing up my first problem, uh, logistical problem with the movie, which is that how does a six-year-old boy that has never known the outside world know how to get away in a stick shift? Well, they did they address that. that. 
<laughs> I know they even bring it up, which I think was a bad move. But but he, the, I think Donald Pleasance has some a sideline where like he probably watched somebody do that. No, someone must have been giving him lessons, is what they say. Okay, but that's they drop that. No, there's never any like reveal about. Oh yeah, the the candy striper has been sh- teaching him, or he had a you know a coin op of turbo or something. There's no, <laughs> there's no there's no reference as to why this mentally damaged boy would ever have had that skill. I mean, I could watch movies about people flying planes all the time, and if someone put me at the uh, at the helm of one right now, we would be crashing <laughs> to the earth. I mean, there's that's not a skill that you can just pick up and learn by television. Believe it or not, television can't teach you everything. And I I do think it's a problem with the movie. I I digress. My point is that's our introduction to Donald Pleasance. And we see him very much from that point on as a man who is resigned to the idea that Michael is unstoppable evil. He does not think of him as a person. And that is a weird quality for a therapist. If your therapist does not (laughs) believe that you're a human being, you need to drop him and get a new therapist. <laughs> because that's a relationship that's not going to work. And he really, re- yeah, I mean, there are many lines where the sheriff's like, oh, he's a man, or I put five bullets in there. And he's like, no, he is evil. You know, they, he, uh, Donald Pleasance, for some reason, after spending 15 years, he's, he's, I think he breaks it down to seven years of trying to help him with therapy, and then eight years of just trying to keep him institutionalized away from the rest of the world, has really gotten the idea that this is a manifestation of evil incarnate and that I really wanted to know more about how a therapist, a a person trained in the psychiatric arts would come to such an old world superstitious conclusion. But what's great about it is how epic it makes Michael. Michael himself would not be nearly as dangerous if you didn't have the old man running around with authority saying he (laughs) is evil. You know, I agree. I agree. Yeah, you're right. He gives it validity in a way that that uh, you would not have otherwise. That you have this this British man in small town, uh, you know, middle uh, middle town America, telling anyone that will listen, and not many people are. I got to say, telling anyone to listen that evil incarnate is uh, walking amongst them tonight. I also felt that that paranoia he had. Part of it was because he felt responsible that this guy is loose, and I think a lot of it was him covering his ass. Although maybe you know. But I do agree with you that 100% that him building up Michael and who this kid is really helps when when Michael reveals himself and then starts to kill people. It really helps with the the gravitas of the situation. And really, that seems to be the only reason Pleasance is in this movie, because he isn't in it a whole lot. We spend a whole lot more time seeing Lori babysit than we see Pleasance (laughs) tracking him down. And he's there just to tell us how bad a mofo is loose. That's true. Because otherwise, we would just see a guy in a mechanics jumpsuit and a Shatner mask. Right. And it's it's weird, but it doesn't have the, oh, shit, we're fucked feeling right. that comes with knowing that this guy is pure evil to the point that his therapist thinks that he's screwed up. Right. I had to look Talk- up afterwards why Donald Pleasance did the movie. It seemed to me that it was a weird choice. I And I don't think I got a straight answer. 
The only thing I could find was that his daughter had seen Carpenter's movie before this one, liked the movie, and Donald Pleasance did this movie on the advice of his daughter. That's the only thing I could find. Well, well, you know, what the hell? I mean, Christ, he's Donald Pleasance. He's not like he's some great guest. Okay. <laughs> he was the third choice for Carpenter. It's not like, how in the world did they get Donald Pleasance? I'm sitting here before this podcast going, yeah, he's the Halloween guy. <laughs> well, it's, like Donald Ple- it, it's like Donald Pleasance was sitting at home twiddling his thumbs waiting for the phone call for work, and, and this is what came through. I'm just, okay, and okay. For, okay. From what I read on IMDb, and take this for what it's worth, he took it because he'd always been playing villains and psychos and never gotten the chance to play mm-hmm. a hero. So he saw this role as heroic because that's why he did it. He said, in his in his words, it was Dr. Loomis was the Van Helsing to Mike Myers' Dracula. Now, that's a very good uh, metaphor. That's actually uh, a very apt description. Van Helsing, though, is a, is, is a troubling hero because he's, he is much like Loomis, sort of driven by a mad idea. You get the sense that he's not entirely right in the head either. He's a hero just because he's got the gun and he wants to stop evil incarnate. But his attraction to it, his, his relationship to it is strange and a little bit pathological. Yeah, I mean, he's definitely creepy, and I'm surprised that law enforcement's so willing to work with him. Yeah, well, they're not really, because I I don't know whether the town is underpopulated with policemen. I, I think that town is underpopulated with adults. Don't you think it's weird <laughs> that there are no adults in this movie, in the school, in uh, the parents? Like, what parents on Halloween go away to a party and then leave all their children at home alone? I have like, a theory. That they're swingers because they disappear in the second movie. They're like, where are the parents? They were at this party and then they left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't understand that. But um, there are no parents anyway. There's one sheriff guy. He's also the father of one of the victims. He's Annie's father. And he sort of humors Loomis. He's like, okay, I'll stand around in the bush on Halloween for you, but I don't want to. But he's really not there. What what I don't understand is when the killings finally do take place in the in the second half of the movie, we know that somewhere Loomis is in the bush, but he's somehow missing all of the action, including uh, Michael walking around with holding corpses. But notice they don't even we... decorate. The houses are not even decorated. Well, I actually, mean, like... there's jack o' lanterns everywhere in the well, school ja- okay. and, yes. and on, on people's de- on people's um, stoops. There's jack o' lanterns everywhere. Why is the kid holding a pumpkin on Halloween day? He should have yeah. cut that by now. But that's okay. Yeah. I mean, all those kind of things fine. Why is the girl who changes her clothes? in the kitchen that goes to the laundry room walking around Illinois October 31st with no pants on for 10, 15, 20 minutes of the movie. Because she's really in Pasadena and it's never cold there. Exactly. But But these are the things that I noticed that I said, okay, I'll give it to you because I'm enjoying the movie and these things I happen to notice. Yes, fine, well, good. But the parents thing, I was like, there's not one parent home with their kid trick-or-treating. All these kids are out trick-or-treating sans parents. There's no parents with these. Who babysits on Halloween? Who gets a job on Halloween to babysit? And they don't even 
even take them trick-or-treating or so we don't see. Maybe they took them treating and then they went to a party. What do I know? It just seemed really odd. I have to, and I had a real note of, of all the things this movie did not convince me of is why there are no parents around. Yeah, and I think obviously a lot of that's budgetary. They didn't have the money for extras and for people to stand around. And, and you want to create the sense of danger that, that this girl is isolated, alone, without any authority figure to turn to. I think there's actually a really good joke uh, towards the end when, when uh, Lori is sort of aware that her friends are being killed and, and trying to uh, uh, escape. She runs to a neighboring house and knocks on the door and yes. they, they just don't they just don't help. They're like, no. They close crazy. the blinds and turn they off cl- the lights. <laughs> they deserve to get TP'd to, <laughs> until they are dead for that. You know, like every year, soap the windows. You know, that's that's pretty poor. That's pretty poor neighborly advice. If someone's shrieking for help and beating on the door for bloody murder, you don't presume that it's a Halloween prank. You have to at least open the door and be like, okay, kid, what's up? Can I tell you something that made me very glad I'm never having kids is the fact that Linda and her boyfriend go to visit Annie, who's babysitting. Yes. Annie is not home. The house in which... Annie is babysitting is empty. So Linda mm-hmm. and her boyfriend proceed to go into this stranger's house, find a bedroom, and fuck. <laughs> so the fact that not only could my kids be having underage sex in the house, but the babysitter's friend could come over when the house is empty. Mm-hmm. That was just like, you, you guys really must know that family well. And she's yes, like, second it, door on the left. Do this often? Yeah, they must they must have known about the swingers party because it would have been so awkward if the parents <laughs> did come home at that moment. Where's my daughter? Where's the babysitter? Hey, where's kid? I don't know. What's that smell? I don't want to tell you. It's yeah, no. It's just not it's just not kosher. It's just not kosher. And then the phone rings and they answer it. Yes. <laughs> you're right. You're what are right. they gonna say if it's the parents? Where's my daughter? Where's the babysitter? Who are <laughs> Who? you? <laughs> oh, we sold her for some from weed. I don't know. It's yeah, they're very bad kids here. These they're very negligent in their parental duties. Only Lori is a good babysitter. Which is, of course, why she lives. She's 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 protecting the traditional family. She's not having extramarital sex. She's not a bad girl, and thus she gets to live. But she still smokes a joint. Well, that's they make a distinction about that. I mean, smoking weed is one thing, but having sex with strange men—that's a no-no. <laughs> <laughs> and I love Linda's death because I think that's iconic with the sheet and the glasses over the sheet. It's mm-hmm. fantastic. That's a great thing. It's just so perfect. And the fact that in these movies, nobody ever realizes you just grew six inches. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great way to build suspense. I mean, it would have been one thing if he had just barged in there or she had heard a noise and gone downstairs and gotten killed. It's much. It's a much different um, tack to have Michael appear to her and for her to believe fall under the illusion that it is in fact the boyfriend returning trying to scare her as a ghost and on halloween he, he, even, he even puts the glasses on the ghost sheet i mean that's just it's it's all it's it, it's a hair short of being too much but it's it's brilliant it's just a little thing but uh, i loved it it's carpenter sense of humor i mean yeah. having seen his work that is that is him but also mm. you guys talked about before how realistic a lot of this is that seems to me that of all of you know a lot of it seems a lot of all of this stuff that whole thing you could see why would she suspect someone else is in the house why she why wouldn't she think that's her boyfriend who's dicking around with her and not answering her questions Mm -hmm. i mean it made a lot of sense to me like when i saw that whole scene i was like absolutely brilliant it was just 
so much fun too, you know, because you know the answer. And she is so innocent, you know, she doesn't care. She had, why would she suspect? It's just a, it was just a really fun thing to see. It was. I must say that perhaps part of the reason that we're so you know enamored with this is, God damn, it was a long time getting to the deaths. Uh, there were, in the first hour, it's only three deaths. Yeah, and well, there's like 40 minutes. There's the very beginning where Michael kills his sister, and then mm-hmm. there's this just long stretch of Michael in bushes, Michael driving around, Michael watching through a window, and babysitting. I like that stuff. I I, I, I understand that that's going to be a complaint for some people because we're trained to uh, adhere to processing things at a much faster rate, but there's something nice about the handheld camera and just the way that things linger and that they build that that he is just this thing in the background that pops out of a bush and then disappears that i don't know i found all of that very satisfying to me the pacing was right but let me mm-hmm. let me out you on something you love 70s cinema i do you do That's and true. that is your style and i love 21st century cinema with the well all right i like late 20th century cinema i just this is too slow for my tastes that period i honestly started checking the time i went oh 30 minutes where nothing happened 40 minutes where nothing happened finally at the 50 minute mark we started to get into some of the deaths but well here's the thing i mean i wouldn't say nothing is happening they're building towards something there's no deaths what you're saying is that you're not engaged unless somebody's life is in peril i would like to have more happening than just knowing about ben tramer and Lori's crush on him and them you know i like that it builds suspense but i wish that there there was just a little bit more going on beyond it. It's hard to keep me in suspense for 40 minutes where it's the whole suspense is, ooh, is he going to get her now? And again, perhaps that's because I've seen this movie so often that I know when he's going to get who. And so it's just kind of like, yeah, he's in the background again. Mm-hmm. I think if we had a different uh, female protagonist, I might be inclined to feel that way. If you remember, a lot of my complaints about Friday the 13th was that I didn't like any of the people. Here's a case, a perfect case, of where I like Jamie Lee Curtis. I like her. She's just got a, a really compelling presence. She does. It's not like she does anything special here. It's hard to really know why, but you are compelled to watch her on the screen. And you are with her, and I'm invested in her making it out of this. That's not true for a lot of these slasher movies. I have to agree. I think you're absolutely dead on about something here it's how often do you watch a movie and you say you know this is the movie that made the actor you know Mm -hmm. and i'm not saying again that i agree with you i was thinking about after i watched this movie how many jamie lee curtis movies have i seen and how many movies of those movies have i not liked her in them and i can't Mm. find the one i can't i mean i i like true lies i like her in true lies i like her in uh, fish call one i mean you name it if i've seen her in it i don't mind her i'm not saying she's oscar worthy actress of of all time she's not meryl streep but she certainly gets the job done very well and she has this uh, very easygoing presence that you enjoy watching. And especially in this movie, there's something natural about her. You actually feel she is in peril, and, you, and she actually conveys that very well. And I think it's very effective. And so I, I, I also didn't mind that there was not a lot of killings in this one because they had me. They had me with the shots. They had me with the suspense. They had me with this character. So I, I didn't know where things were coming, Arnie. So for me, I really did enjoy it. I completely see your point about the pace of the movie, but I thought it really worked for this particular movie. And you know what? In this case, I envy you, and I wish I could go back and see it the first time, because having just watched all the Friday the 13th, you probably expected a death every 10 
minutes. And so you're when right. you see Michael jump out, you're probably like, oh, now's the time. Oh, it didn't. Oh, now's the time. Oh, it didn't. You know, that kind of, it's almost like a, a tease. And that would be great if only the first time. Well, so, you know what? That's a very good point. Maybe I should watch it again and let you know, because I really had so much fun with that exact same thing you just said. I really did. I had a big smile on my face because I felt like the filmmaker was dicking with me, you know, and I was and he had me. He had me hooked. You know, I had to see when it was going to happen and how it was going to happen. And oh, oh, my God, that didn't happen. That all oh, there he is. You know, it was so much fun. I'm going to put out a theory here. And Arnie, I want you to let me know if I'm I'm on to something here. I think maybe what the difference is, is that when you watch a horror movie, you're rooted in seeing what the killer is going to do. And when I'm watching this, I'm invested in Jamie Lee Curtis getting away. It depends on the movie. But the fact is, for much of it, it's not Jamie Lee Curtis getting away. It's Jamie Lee Curtis making popcorn and watching The Thing. And, you know, it takes so long before Jamie Lee Curtis even knows what movie she's in. You know, I agree. I agree. I, I and I, I for me, that's part of the charm. Uh, part of it is that I identified with that that region. That time was when I was growing up. You know, I obviously not the same age as Jamie Lee Curtis, but I would have been she would have babysit me at that time. And, uh, you know, there's just something about the period. I enjoyed staring at it. I enjoyed it felt real to me and the pacing of it felt real to me. It wasn't just let's get to the next butchery. And it was very, you know, Hitchcockian in that way too yes and i agree i i do completely agree with you though that this was my childhood on screen these were the houses like i lived in the neighborhood like i lived in the babysitter and the activities with the babysitters that i did Yes. Although no babysitters had sex second door on the left that I know of. <laughs> you never know what they were doing. I mean, Seriously. it was, it was <laughs> the 70s. You have no idea. Well, my parents weren't out all night at swinger parties. <laughs> you don't know that either, Arnie, but that's, that's for off the record. But one thing I do want to make sure we talk about before we end up is the final scene, the death, quote unquote, of Michael Myers. Uh, when Dr. Loomis finally comes to the rescue and saves Jamie Lee Curtis at the end. Michael stalking Jamie through the house and he gets stabbed in the neck with a knitting needle and then he falls from that I thought was odd, but thank goodness he got up from that. And then he chases her upstairs and almost gets her this and that. The whole thing, she falls down the stairs. The whole thing was just so effective and creepy. But when Loomis finds her and shoots him, what, five, six times, and he falls out the window and there's no body. I thought that's the one thing that was kind of supernatural about the entire movie. And there's one event that happens before that that I was so amazed that they did. And they show Michael without the mask on. And he's normal. Yeah, yes. and he's normal. He's not, he's not deformed. And I was wondering why they did that and did they need to do that. And I don't think they did. But I thought it was an interesting choice. Keep in mind that when this was happening, they were starting it. You know, in every other horror movie after this, the mask coming off will either be the reveal. It's old Mr. Johnston. Or <laughs> it's a horrifying thing of seeing how deformed the killer is. Here you take it off. And the word that Carpenter used to describe the actor who you see the face of, who is not the actor who plays Michael in every other scene. They got a guy just for the face reveal. And it's somebody who... Who Carpenter said he wanted them to look angelic. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's mirroring the first scene of the movie, which is that uh, when we finally had the mask taken off, it's an innocent child, and he does look 
childlike. There's the, like the hair is, is similar. He looks like a, a stretched out version of what he did in the beginning of the movie. And that it's uh, you're again left with the, the feeling of how did something this normal operate with such brutality? How is this possible? How does it channel out of this being? You know, they don't call Michael Myers in the movie in the credits. They don't call him Michael Myers. They call him the shape, which I think is funny. And why is that? I don't get that. I think it's it plays into the idea that he is not a person, that he is actually evil embodiment, and that this is the shape uh, that evil has taken. It's a very allegorical take on on evil, and that it can be that it assumes a form, it dehumanizes him, and that is what the name the shape does. It's what that mask does. It looks human, and yet there's something about it being featureless and white that makes it seem unnatural and unsettling. And I think that that in many ways is why I find him to be the perfect uh, slasher character because we're not dealing with his personality. There is no personality there. And that's where the fear comes out of. The fear comes out of the fact that we don't really understand Michael. We can't read what's going on in his eyes. We can't see his lips change. We don't know whether he's enjoying it, whether he's in pain. We don't really understand him. The only thing we really get out of this is that in some way he was trying to make a monument to his dead sister because he goes and takes the tombstone and puts it in the house next to the body. But beyond that, his motivations are totally cryptic and and they give us almost nothing. And that's pretty atypical of any slasher movie uh, that you can otherwise think of. There's usually more of a character to it, which is why I theorize, Arnie, that you might prefer other series to Halloween because... The emphasis is on the killer and not the victim. Well, one thing that you mentioned there is the mask, and we haven't talked much about it, but truly, that is an off-the-shelf William Shatner Captain Kirk mask that they then painted white. Do they? Does he get royalties for this? No. You want? Okay, he does not. He does I guess not. you would. I mean, it was just a. I think the company was Don Post, and they had a retail mask that they bought for a buck ninety-eight. But my God, is that a creepy-looking mask? <laughs> There was I a little can't even feature. tell it's William Shatner. No, you can't. You really can't. That the fact that that yeah, even knowing that and watching it this time, yeah, there's I, no that does not come through. It's it, so it, famously William Shatner's mask. It's a such it's such a famous like piece of trivia. Yeah, and I'm watching this movie. I'm like, I can't even tell that's William Shatner. I, it looks like a dummy they put wigs on. You know, like those mm-hmm. little styrofoam heads. Yeah, you can't even tell. Well, the one thing they did also is they carved out the eyes a little more so that yeah. the eyes were bigger and everything else. But, you know, it's just it, uh, to me, I find it funny that it is him. It's just I, I find that an amusing thing, but it is just so creepy. You know, there was a making of a little featurette on the DVD that I watched and they talked about the mask and how they came to choose it and the first idea was that they were going to make it a clown, you know, much like the mask that they had there. There was some clown character, I can't even remember the name of it, that they were going to use and they were like, oh, what's scarier than a clown walking around killing people? Certainly a way they could go with. Many people are afraid of clowns. I don't particularly like them, but they felt that once they had painted the Shatner mask white and put it on, that something clicked and that the whole movie fell into place. And I think, I mean, obviously, who can argue eight sequels later, they made the right choice. As scary as clowns are, there's something even more terrifying about the shape. 
And and you mentioned the eyes being carved out more. That doesn't give you more of, more of a chance to see the actor underneath. Usually he's lit in such a way that it just looks like holes in the darkness. I mean, that's the thing that's creepy about this. It is almost like this isn't a person. It's the shape of a person. It's what a person should be. And somewhere underneath there is a little boy. But what we're dealing with, what what is being fought here, is evil incarnate. And I, again, the scene where he's unmasked very briefly, the fact that he scrambles so fast to get that mask back on, it again mm-hmm. just makes me think that he can't do these evil things himself. He has to be seeing it through the mask. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a dissociation tool. It's a way of of not being present for it. It's interesting. And it does, you know, uh, there was a lot of gripes when the Rob Zombie remake was being launched that you don't remake a classic, that there's no need to go back. But seeing this one again, I can see the idea of, of why it's worthy to go back and rethink this from the perspective of Michael Myers. To, to essentially, I think what Zombie, what we're going to see when we go and look at the new movies is that the focus is very much on how does a child become this shape thing but here it's not that's not the focus the focus is very much Lori and how does she persevere being attacked by evil incarnate and the fact that in this movie it is just so random in Friday the 13th those kids went into his lake and in Nightmare on Elm Street the parents killed hit Freddy but here these are just three teenager babysitters who are in the house he happens to pick well yeah I mean the sort of one of the the things that doesn't totally make sense here is that the uh, house uh, has been abandoned. That where we originally the original movie has been abandoned. It's now a rental property that they have been unable to unload because people know it's dark history. It's been fifteen years. <laughs> Wouldn't you have just? you know, gotten a bulldozer and built something people wanted to live in if it was that traumatic. Perhaps nobody wanted to live there because the gutters are falling off and, you know, it seems in a state of disrepair. I think if I'm the realtor, I'm going to at least up the curb appeal a little bit. <laughs> and and Lori's dad, in fact, the man in charge of putting it, he's a realtor. He's the one in charge of trying to get rid of this thing. There's no for sale sign in the yard. I'm like, couldn't you do a few, <laughs> few cosmetic improvements to make this appetizing to people i mean who who would want to live there i don't know and that's right that's where michael gets the first glimpse of Lori. is she's dropping the key under the mat for whoever wants the place who never comes apparently but whatever maybe it was michael (laughs) maybe michael Michael. stopped on the way he stopped he killed a (laughs) mechanic stole the outfit made a phone call to find out who the realtor was you're right you're right The, the the honest truth of the matter is just because we've never heard him talk doesn't mean that he can't and in fact if he can drive a stick shift he can probably uh, <laughs> rent a house talk if need of it he could probably rent a house <laughs> and then yes the very end i love the end where you see him shot six times he falls out a window and he's gone and that's the end of the movie and that's great because you know what especially again for Stuart and i who were like we're seeing our childhood there if we were kids that means he's coming for us next he's in our hood that definitely is what how I took that when I saw that movie, is that it definitely felt like he's out in the world now. And uh, I, there was no expectation of a Halloween 2. You know, this movie came out not in a climate where you knew they would churn out a sequel really fast the next year and there would be more and more and more and more. It just felt like that's the end of the story and the open-endedness of it made it a personal threat. It and- made it 
made it real. And how much scarier is it to walk out of a theater and just think, if you were into this movie for 90 minutes and see this killer, and at the end, the killer is still out there still killing, and not for the sake of a sequel, but just because it, it is creepier to have the killer at large than it is to see the killer defeated. Now, earlier you talked about the DVD. Did any of you, I did not, I watched the Blu-ray, but did any of you watch the extended TV edition? I don't believe I did. I watched the DVD version you watched, Stuart, because I watched most of that documentary as well. Yeah. There is an extended TV edition. When this was getting ready to go out for network television, I think it was NBC, they realized that to edit this movie to fit the two-hour block, it was too short after they cut out what they had to cut out with the nudity and all. And so when they were making Halloween 2, Carpenter came back and got a lot of the principals back together and shot some extra scenes. So it's more of the stuff you don't want to see, huh? Well, actually, I really like those scenes. There's uh, one a scene where it's six months after Michael kills his sister, and it's Dr. Loomis and little boy Michael trying to connect there. Oh, interesting. And then there's oh. a follow-up scene where Loomis is in Meyer's room and saying something along the lines of, like, you fooled them. Like, nobody else knows how evil you are, but I know. Huh. You know what? I feel like I might have seen that cut at some point, given that I've seen the movie many times and on television. You're, you saying that reminds me of things that I have seen, but I just assumed they were in some future sequel or something that I haven't watched yet. They also tie it more into Halloween 2, because in Halloween 2 is where the reveal is that Laurie is Michael's sister. And mm. after Michael escapes from the sanitarium, Loomis goes in and they see the word sister, like, scrawled on the wall. Oh. So it makes it so that in this extended TV edition, which is, again, it's the one I watch most often. It's the one I purchased on DVD. So that's why when I'm watching this Blu-ray and I'm like, they never say it. It's because in my version, it, it's hinted at at least. Mm. I see. Yeah, that definitely helps create the idea that they knew uh, about an evolving story. The whole idea that Lori being Michael's sister is not something at all hinted at in this movie version. No, not at, at all. all. No, and it, it, and, it, and and for what it is as a self-contained one-off story, isn't necessary. No, and at yeah. the end when she goes, you know, it is the boogeyman. Yes, it is because for what they wanted to accomplish in this movie was a crazed serial killer straight out of the loony bin killing you and when it's over that's what you have and he's not in this movie doing it because Laurie's his sister he's doing it because that's what he does right and i think that's creepy as hell yeah Laurie just happens to have the misfortune of living down the street from the house it has nothing to do with bloodlines or whatever they get into in the future all right guys so do you recommend halloween Stuart? i i definitely do it's uh it's just one of those movies you need to see i think there's a tendency these days that people don't want to see movies from the 70s or the early 80s that they're low budget that they're cruddy that there's a grimy quality that is not in fashion but i think that if you go back to this one you will find there is a real artistry to the way that it's made crudely however it may be and that it's got a lot more going for it than most of the slasher sequels that it's sort of categorized and lumped in with. Arnie. I recommend this. I think that there's so much in here that is so good. But for today's audience, you got to know that there's going to be a 30 minute stretch where if you're watching this at home, you're going to be tempted to grab the iPhone or to start surfing the web or do something like that. Because or how about this, Arnie? Maybe this is a, your opportunity to glimpse at what the world is like 
before the internet, before the iPhone, before people had anything like that. I mean, that's what I appreciate about it. It is, but I'm saying that to our listeners, right. I think that there's listening to a podcast. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I, I think <laughs> that there's going to be 30 minutes of this movie where they're going to be going unless, like Brock, they've never known anything about it. There's going to be 30 dead minutes. But I think that there's so much good here, and especially if you're a fan of horror. I'm not one of those people who says, well, if you're a fan of this, you really need to see the genesis and see where all the roots came from. No, but if you're a fan of horror, you're going to get a kick out of this, and you're going to see stuff you've seen before. How many things that are referenced in Scream did I tick off here? The boyfriend says, I'll be right back, and gets killed. And the guy runs into the house, and they run upstairs to escape. I mean, it's all the cliches. It's where the cliches began, and it's it's a good time. And when the movie is over, I never regret having watched it. And I have to say, I had I enjoyed the heck out of this one. Everything you're saying is true. It is a movie made from a different time. And up until, what, 10 years ago, it was the most successful independent movie ever made. And there's a reason for that. This movie succeeds in its mission. It is creepy as all heck. And it, it shows that horror movies don't have to be just blood and gore. There can be, there's more to what horror can be. And I'm not a student of horror. I'm just a guy who watches these movies with you guys. And I have to say, I really like this one. And I do advocate giving it a chance, even though it's older. It's like 30, over 30 years old now. It's entirely worth the watch. It's really fun. And I honestly am looking forward to seeing this again one day. Something I cannot say about some of the other movies we've watched. <laughs> <laughs> together as a group okay so that's our episode on halloween if you like this episode please i encourage you to go to www.nowplayingpodcast.com and download our other episodes in our other retrospective series if you'd like to leave us an email please do so at show at nowplayingpodcast.com and if you like what you're listening to please leave us a review on itunes so other people like yourselves can find us and listen to us as well i want to thank arnie and Stuart for joining me today thanks thank you and we look forward to seeing Halloween 2 in our next podcast. Talk to you guys later. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Halloween Retrospective. It's all over, my friends. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can listen to our other installments, as well as our Friday the 13th, House of a Thousand Corpses, Terminator, and Star Trek retrospective series at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production and is not affiliated with Compass International, Universal Pictures, Galaxy International Pictures, Dimension Films, Miramax Films, or The Weinstein Company. Michael Myers, and all other Halloween characters and situations are copyright and trademarks of those companies, and no infringement is intended. I, I remember proudly teaching myself how to play it on piano as a kid. I I don't know why I thought it would be so hard, but it all was, two uh, notes of it, huh? Yeah. Well, well, no. There's the the left hand's doing the da da, but then you got that do 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 do. It's it took a little bit of syncopation. I gotta say, it's not for your 
chopsticks knowing uh, you got to know piano for a good six months before you can do Halloween. 